When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on the show, we're still talking about the Dune movie because, listen, we're, we're still not over it. No, 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 no. You have a problem, all right? <laughs> Get out of here with your criticism. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Welcome to Gam Jabbar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name's Abu. My name is Leo. And Leo. Yeah. Someone's in the room with us again. Again? What? Again, dude. God, we got to lock the door. It is, <laughs> that is becoming a problem. <laughs> no, no, no. This time we actually invited her. Oh, right. We are so stoked. Yeah. To have Elaine from Nerd Cookies back on the show. Elaine. Hello. Oh, hey. my gosh. <laughs> Elaine, thank you so much for joining us. So glad to be here. Yeah. We are so glad to have you back. Yeah. We did an entire episode a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Uh-huh. I'm mixing up my franchises. <laughs> That's not a good look. Love Star Trek. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, so good. Set phase lasers to something. And okay, Harry Potter, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we did an entire episode about Amtal Rule with you, Elaine, a long time ago, and it was a ton of fun. Yeah. And we wanted to have you back on because the Dude movie is kind of out. And everyone has seen it, and we all have thoughts, and we wanted to hear your thoughts. <laughs> yes, finally. Yeah, right? I can't believe it's happening. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe it's happened. So before we jump into it, tell us a bit about your Dune movie journey. How many times have you seen it now? Did you see it in IMAX? Tell us all about it. Uh, yeah, saw it first in theaters. Uh, very nice theater, comfy chairs, uh, <laughs> wonderful experience what kind of what kind of snacks that's important <laughs> yeah. concessions yeah Pop, popcorn of course classic nice classic. nice good <laughs> yeah and it was it was truly amazing and i definitely recommend it for the first viewing um you know of course according to your circumstances gotta take that into consideration right right but if you can it was it was truly amazing to see the scale of everything and so yeah i would recommend <laughs> it was amazing to see that first and of course i did see it on hbo max as well that night when i got home <laughs> this very same night <laughs> twice in the same day yes and nice and then the next day and <laughs> there's because there's just so much and there's so much there's actually quite a bit that i missed the first viewing yeah because i was just so blown away by everything yeah um so yeah some details i just were kind of glossed over because <laughs> I really tried to view it the first time as just just taking it all in, enjoying right. it as a fan, enjoying it as a viewer, mm-hmm. and and then later I was going to like dive into the to the details of it. And but I first really just wanted to enjoy it and to enjoy this cinematic experience, which is the best way that I could describe this movie. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well said. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, the rewatch in HBO in particular was helpful for me because I had the subtitles on. And mm-hmm. yeah, I could get really nitpicky with with 
everything people were saying because with the movie and the score swelling up, sometimes it was hard to pick out what characters were saying. Right. So right. It, I, the subtitles were helpful. Yeah, I did that too. Yeah, I had the subtitles on the next next viewing, and and I think the sound was better also on my sound bar. So I think I've heard people some varying things about mixed reviews about the sound itself. Right. But I think the sound was cool for the theater. Yeah. But it kind of was overwhelming. It could be overwhelming for some, but it was nice to see. I think it just depends on maybe your theater right. and their equipment they're using. But I think the sound, I could hear it better mm-hmm. on my sound bar. So. Right. Leo, you saw it in IMAX twice and you said the sound was like Man. shaking your seat. Because it was so loud and so big in IMAX. Oh, yeah. It's 4D. <laughs> you didn't even know that. Right. Yeah. They poured sand on you. It was seven dimensions. <laughs> All right. Before we get into specifics. There's so much to say. Yeah. There's so much to say. Before we get into the specifics of the movie. Right. There is a little bit of housekeeping, Elaine, that me and Leo have to take care of. Tiny bit. Mm-hmm. So if you don't mind, we're going to blast through some boxes we have to check. Of course. First thing, today's discussion will contain spoilers for the movie. So go see it. <laughs> go see the film. It's great. <laughs> and uh, and also for the rest of the book, because we're going to talk about where it ends and where it could have ended, things like that. So just, you know, read the book, see the movie. Spoiler warning for today. That's right. And of course, we want to hear what all of you have to think as well. So write to us, gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Send us your thoughts on the movie. We want to hear it all, folks. And you can support the podcast, you can support what we do by becoming a patron and checking out our gorgeous merch on patreon.com forward slash gamjabar and gamjabarshop.com. That's the housekeeping. We did it. (laughs) Bada bing, bada boom. Wham. And bam. We got through it. You guys are so professional. You got this down pat. (laughs) Oh, thanks. (laughs) We try so hard. It's down to a science. Oh. Yeah. Most of it's editing. And it's not like that when we're alone. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, we're really buttoned up in front of you, Elaine. Yeah, but we try hard. The shackles are off when it's just us. <laughs> All righty, so now that we're past the spoiler warning, we're done with the housekeeping, let's jump into it. Yeah. And like we said, there's so much to say, and obviously the three of us could go on for hours and hours and jump all over the place with the movie, so... In an attempt to keep all of us a little more focused, we wanted to structure today's episode mainly, Elaine, based on your opinions, because our listeners have heard our massive spoiler deep dive episode of the movie. Leo and I are sick of talking about our thoughts on it, and we'd love to hear yours. So we want to focus the discussion. (sighs) So tired of Abu. You're tired of hearing his voice? I'm just so sick of hearing Leo's voice. Yeah, God, same. Ditto, buddy. (laughs) So the way we wanted to approach today was, Elaine, we wanted to talk about two things that you picked that you loved about the film and unpack those and explore those more fully. And then two things that either didn't work for you or that you disliked or where you thought the film felt short and talk through those two things as well. So that's sort of the game plan for today. Awesome. All right. (laughs) All right. Let's start with the things that you liked. Pick number one. What was the first thing you wanted to talk about? Okay, well, the first thing I'd have to say that just blew me away, because it's something that I personally love from the books themselves. Duncan Idaho is my favorite character. Yeah. And that is something I was really looking for, and I was hoping that he would be more developed uh, in this adaptation, as he's kind of been, you know, diminished even further. I mean, he has a small role in comparison to the other characters, 
but right. his contribution mm-hmm. to the story is so significant, and especially when you think of the long-term effect that his character has on the saga. Right, right. So I really wanted to see, you know, justice done to his character, and I, I was utterly blown away. It was more than I could have imagined, and I was so happy in that regard. That was like the major, a major thing for me. And Jason Momoa killed it. Yeah. Uh, yes. He crushed it. <laughs> so good. It's funny because I remember my parents listened to some of the our episodes and they heard us just gushing about Duncan Idaho and all of his glory, right? We always make the joke, Duncan motherfucking Idaho, because he's so <laughs> great. We love him. But if you read the first book, he like dies, but you barely see the death. Like you barely even know that he dies. And it's yeah. not a very glorious ending to this character who you're right has these like very long lasting ramifications within the narrative of Dune. So to have him have more time on screen, I agree. That's such a good point, Elaine. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, it, it was still more than uh, I had hope with all the footage he was presented in. But still, yeah. it wasn't what I was expecting. It was more than what I, I could have hoped for. And I loved that. There's a lot of things that those little touches of Frank Herbert contributes in, in how he crafts the story, how he crafts the characters. Right. And there's a lot of stuff that goes on with Duncan that's not really described in detail, like on screen, I guess is the best way I could say it. But he's talked about, his actions are talked about. Uh, many times, mm-hmm. and even even after his final scene, the effect of his presence is still with Paul, and he still could hear his Duncan's words, you know, of when he's fighting Jameis and uh, the advice that. Um, so it's still it, he's still present right. within him, and, and this just those little touches there that Frank Herbert put in the story. I just wanted it to be like fleshed out and just. To have that contribution in in the film, and I wasn't sure it was possible because there was a lot of stuff he does off screen, as far especially like meeting the Fremen for the first time, right. which I was a little disappointed at first that we didn't get to see when he first saw them, encountered them. But what they did give us was still surprising, and still <laughs> yeah. um, they still mentioned it. They still contributed, yeah. had that from the book and pulled that from the novel, and they still just killed it with how much. Uh, he meant to Paul and their friendship, which I think was the most, probably the most important thing to get right, was his relationship to the Atreides family, right. and specifically Paul. Yeah. And in that respect, they really were faithful to the source material. Yeah. So, yay! <laughs> <laughs> I agree fully. What, yeah. what did you think about his more action-oriented scenes, his fight choreography, his escape from Arakeen during the attack? Did you have thoughts about that? Oh, all of that was uh, so impressed me too, especially with the shield fighting specifically. I was concerned that it's such a weird thing. <laughs> it's such a strange thing how combat has evolved. Right. And I wasn't sure if they could fully realize all that comes with shield fighting and the different weapons and ways of combat, especially with the different houses. Yeah. Yeah, so I think they pulled all of that off very nicely and how the shields work. And especially with Duncan, um, when you see him fighting, you see those little touches of the details of him fast on defense and then slowly um, working the blade through the shield. And at times it was kind of fast, we couldn't really see it, but there were times where we could see those moments work in the shield to compromise it. (laughs) Right. So very impressive. Like he places the blade and then drags it versus like slashing. 
Yeah. There was that shot where he's escaping Arakeen and he's slowly sliding the blade across that one Sardaukar's throat, you know? Mm -hmm. It's not like a quick slash. It's a very slow, like, shh. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know if they mention why that is. Why Well, I guess, yeah, Gurney does a little bit. Yeah, in the sparring scene. But they really, like, flesh that out uh, in the actual action scene. So it's really cool how they did that. Yeah. We were sort of joking about... There are times when he cuts pretty quickly. Yeah. Pretty quickly will like slash someone and they go down. Mm-hmm. And I was saying, we don't really get an explanation in lore about like how Holtzman shields disperse force, you know? Yeah. Does it just 100% negate force or is it distribute it to the thing that's contained within the shield, mm-hmm. right? And if it does, <laughs> I wonder if it's just canon that Duncan Idaho is cutting with the force of like 90 pounds. <laughs> so... <laughs> It like fully. He has the force. He has the force. He brings the force needed. Yeah. He's like the juggernaut in a cement wall. He just goes through. That's another thing, too. They really made him, just like the novel does, express or convey his abilities as a fighter because it was so um, just blow everyone's mind that he could defeat all of those Sardaukars single handedly. Right. So again, yeah, another nod to the novel that I thought they pulled off really well that was, and and yeah, at times, and I have to like watch it again just to see those little things because it happens fast a lot of the times that they action. And then there were moments where they really tried to highlight how shields work. Right, right. Um, But yeah, I I could get those moments where I'm not sure if this this is how it would work. Is the shield kind of compromised if if there's two more than one point of contact um, and how it's dispersed, like you were saying? yeah. Or sometimes, I don't know if shields were always present at the time when they were on Air King, because yeah. I know some spots they couldn't have shields. Right. But I'm not sure where, where they were at times in relation to the sandworms. If they were in a safe location, they could activate the shields. Right, right. The two points of contact thing is interesting. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I, that's something I hadn't considered, but throughout the movie, he does use two swords. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's always <laughs> dual wielding those swords. I had to think about that. Yeah. I really want to do a deep dive into all the weapons that they used for yeah. for this. Slip tips, kinjals, bodkins. Yeah. You know, Paul gets Gurney in that kind of pincer two-blade grab. Mm. Maybe that two point of contact's a big thing for shield fighting. Um, but also something that I think is worth pointing out, because uh, I've seen some conversation about like shields not being honored and in, in being accurate in the movie. Remember that there are like lots of different types of personal shields, right? Yeah. Besides in the movie that we see Baron with his like ring activation, these a lot of the Atreides have the like back of the hand kind of thing. But also in the book, Fade Rautha is said to have a half shield that only covers half of his body. That's true. Yeah. And I imagine there are also probably different shield settings, right? Like I think Baron in the scene in the book where uh, the tooth, the tooth scene, (laughs) Baron's shield is set very low. So the it actually almost allowed some of the poison to get through. Mm. They talk about shield settings and power output and stuff like that. So it's possible as well, literally just having enough force on certain shield settings would kill you, depending on the shield and depending on how it's set. Yeah. Fra- Frank Herbert, man. <laughs> Frank Herbert, man. <laughs> so many details. <laughs> he answered some questions. But I like that it leaves room for imagination as well, so where they could... Um, oh, yeah. But a, a lot of complexity in regards to their warfare. Right. That's really cool. Very different than anything we've seen. What did you think of Duncan's death? Because Leah was saying earlier, 
how in the book we get like a sentence, <laughs> <One> sentence. <laughs> and then duncan dies mm-hmm. but here we get a fully extended scene what did you think of that final fight oh it was wow i i cried yeah and I was so surprised how well they built up that moment to where I was I was so emotionally invested. And I was surprised because I knew it was going to happen. I knew the story. <laughs> Wait, have you, have you read Dune? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I thought, you know, I, I didn't think I would be affected that much. Right. And wow, they really just built up the tension. They built up the moment so well it was so well acted and the music and everything every element of that just worked and jason momoa's performance and how they did this before they built up the relationship between him and and paul that was so important to do for that scene to have the impact that it did Mm -hmm. so i'm so glad they did that it really just made that scene yeah it i was so surprised and so sad and but so felt vindicated for duncan and um yeah again surprising that i was able to be so drawn into this moment (laughs) and it was it was amazing i could i can't see enough (laughs) i can't talk (laughs) i can't say enough good things about it because it was it felt like a boromir moment to me like comparison to that oh yeah oh god yeah he was the loyal knight to the Atreides, and he really was, his character was done justice. His his whole character arc to that point, right down to that moment, was just perfect. Yeah. I can't say anything bad about it. Yeah. And you, you bring up a really good sort of larger point about how, as huge Dune fans, like we went into the movie knowing exactly what was going to happen, basically. Right. Yeah. To the point where I was just sitting there in the theater predicting like, oh, he's going to say this next. And then he would say that next. You know, like it, Mm -hmm. we went into it knowing beat by beat what the story was going to be. Right. And yet found myself tearing up at Duncan Idaho's death. Right. Tearing up at Paul and Leto's conversation. The other thing we're going to talk about in a second. Mm -hmm. To me... That right there is proof that something in this movie totally worked. Right. That I, as a super fan, who could tell you beat by beat, quote by quote, what was going to happen in the movie, still was so emotionally invested that I was multiple times brought to tears. Right. Yeah. And, and I've never had that before, that experience before in the previous adaptations that have <laughs> been done. And while they have their good qualities... <laughs> Both Wait, of them. Sting, you're telling me Sting didn't bring you to tears? <laughs> Every scene brought me to tears, but not always for the right but reason. But for the wrong reason. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, that cod piece. <laughs> that cod piece. Well, we'll live in infamy. Yes. I mean, that just goes to show what an amazing storyteller Denis Villeneuve is and how yeah. well he understood the source material. Right. There, Of course, there are things that I wish were uh, could have contributed to the universe, but the most important themes he was very faithful to. And right. that was such a significant part of Paul's journey as well. And, and of course, the greater Dune saga. So, yeah, just just amazing for, for general audiences and for a Dune super fan to feel the same emotions. Mm-hmm. It rarely happens. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And actually, speaking of how well Denny knew and respected the lore and the story and the characters, this next pick that you have is about Paul and Leto's conversation that they have on Kaladin. I assume this is the one in the graveyard that they have? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, I love that. And this is actually 
kind of a tweaked scene, right? Because Paul and Leto do talk in the book at one point in one of the chapters, but the conversation's a little different in the book. Mm-hmm. And it's like on Arrakis, right? Yeah. But here in the movie, we get this like sort of movie-only edition, this new scene, and yet it feels like it could have been pulled directly from the book, right? Right. It feels like a cut chapter from the book. Mm-hmm. That's how well some of these new scenes fit into it. What were your thoughts about this Paul and Leto conversation, and why was this the second pick that you had for today? Yeah, well, exactly as you were saying that the spirit of the novel was so fleshed out in regards to the character specifically that it felt like this was part <laughs> of the story. Yeah. So there are things that we we know that are a part of Frank Herbert's story, but there are things that aren't fully elaborated. It's a lot of things from different points of perspectives but we know other things that did happen. So there's a lot of room there to develop and flesh out the characters and how it was done. I like that it was done on Caladan, that we still had those a pretty good amount of time on Caladan. And I thought that was really nice to distinguish the difference, the massive transition that the family is going to um, face when they leave their home that they've lived on for generations. And again, that was being there in the graveyard. That was, it really hit home how long they had been there, that that was their home. This is their history. What a good point. Yeah. So those little things that really meant a lot Mm -hmm. (laughs) to the greater uh, universe, just little, little touches like that. But there were so many of them that really added up and, Paul and Leto's relationship was one is one of my favorite parts of the novel. Right. Leto is such a honorable and charismatic yet strong and firm leader, but in his relationship with his son, they really it was really important for them to develop that relationship. Mm-hmm. I think actually the core characters like Paul, Jessica, and Leto, uh, including Duncan, I believe were like the this close-knit family. Yeah. And I think that was the most important. The relationships between those characters were the most important to get right. And I just so appreciated this moment in particular. And Oscar Isaac, again, was just perfect as yeah. Duke Leto. I could not imagine anyone else <laughs> do, doing this role. And he, again, he killed it. And it's just good acting. It's good writing. And again, it was another emotional moment. I love yeah. when he said that he was a he wanted to be a pilot, which I thought was an, a neat little detail to add because he is such a skilled pilot, which is what we we see his skills um, demonstrated later. But it, yeah, just a little little thing like that to foreshadow what we're going to see later. And oh, just a beautiful dialogue. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just how how he looks at his son. There's just so many. Uh, elements there yeah right how oscar isaac looked at me through the screen (laughs) yeah brought me to tears but they're building those moments they're building up the tension they're building up to where you feel so emotionally invested right so when what happened to leto happened which we knew was going to happen again right it was another moment where i was so into the story but they did the work to get there. Mm-hmm. And that is why someone who already knew what was going to happen was so enthralled. Yeah, They really worked on the relationships. And so that moment really stood out to me. And and just the legacy of Duke Leto, too, really contributed to what kind of leader he was and, how, and to what kind of father he was. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was very close 
close-knit thing, those two things that really made up Duke Leto and just beautifully done. Yeah, I agree. I loved that little detail about him wanting to be a pilot and not actually wanting to be Duke. Right. Not only is that incredible parenting in Mm -hmm. that moment, you know, being vulnerable with his son, opening up to his son, recognizing that young Paul is going through many of the conflicting emotions that he did at that age. It's great parenting, but it's also a detail that perfectly fits, just like you said, because we know from the books that Duke Leto is an excellent pilot. And like you said, we see it demonstrated just later in this very movie during the Spice Harvester scene. So being able to add small details like that, that not only make this conversation in the graveyard that much more powerful, but are also consistent with the character that we know from the books, from the lore, and from the movie itself. Yeah, It's just great writing. And it, it shows how well this team knew and respected the Dune universe and the source material. Yeah. Exactly. And it's funny because I thought um, you think that the more climactic and the more action-heavy scenes, like the sandworms were awesome, right, right. really awe-inspiring. But that was I was surprised that that wasn't my favorite thing. It was it was an important element. But what really made the story was, yes, the, the characters and the relationships between them. That was the most important detail. Yeah. All the rest was just icing on the cake. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, I mean, even more broadly, like Dune is a sci-fi IP. It's not about the Lays guns and the Ixians, and it's not about the shields. It's not about any of that. It's about the humans. And so it feels appropriate that the most impactful moments in this movie were the most human, like Paul and Jessica in the tent together is like probably one of the most electric scenes I've seen all of Javier Bardem's moments on screen. It's not, although the ornithopters are very cool, (laughs) I wasn't, that's not my top three moment is not the ornithopters. My top three moments are the human moments, which feels very appropriate within the Dune universe. Yeah. I just wanted to also shout out what an incredible point you've made about kind of a show don't tell with the Atreides time on on Caladan. Yeah. Right. Mm, I didn't even yeah. think of that. It's brilliant. I w- <laughs> I had just had the thought as you were talking and then you said it and I was like, damn it, she's good. Because <laughs> like, you're right. We don't get some clunky we've been on this planet for 8,000 years. Like, we don't get any of that. So instead, we see Leto turning to them and going, you know, try it out for them in their memory. Mm. And it's just this beautiful moment, but so, so, so human. And it's so hard to craft a show-don't-tell narrative, (laughs) but they did a great job with that, with this detail and with so many others. Yeah. Yeah, and with this universe, what what a difficult task to accomplish something that has such exposition heavy and you know with any world building universe, there's so much to, that you could say. Right. Uh, but I was surprised at what yeah they if they could show it instead of just uh, saying it that they chose to do that and li- limiting the dialogue and exposition. Re- really, I don't think there was any scenes that was really I could describe as exposition heavy. When they were having to explain things, it felt really natural. Yeah, how they did it in, in the terms of conversation when the need arose, like if something needed to be explained for a certain reason, that's how they did it. So it's it's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Very well done. It was handled very delicately. It could have been a lore dump kind of movie, right? But it wasn't. I mean, I wouldn't have minded some more exposition, just a little bit <laughs> more in certain areas. Right. 
But I think right. it was more digestible that way for me- for general audiences. Totally. 100%. Yeah. Right. I needed the fear to explain how glow globes work yeah. for 30 minutes. And I didn't get that scene. Tell us about ECAS. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're going to take a quick break here, but stick around. We'll be right back. And I guess that might be getting into maybe things that didn't work for me at times. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> if we want to get into that part. Brilliant segue, Elaine. Damn. Dang. How about you just take over this podcast then? All right. That's it. Finally. We're done. We're putting up our hats. We're retiring. Get to retire finally. <laughs> no, that's a great segue, actually, because yes, we have gushed a lot about the movie so far. But of course, as huge Dune fans, there are things we noticed that could have been better or that we wanted and didn't get. So let's talk about that. Elaine, what was your first pick for something that didn't quite work for you? So uh, go- going off of that first thought about like having a little bit more exposition or a little bit more explanation of certain elements, yeah, I feel like they could have done um, maybe some reworking of certain scenes so where they could have added why the Mentats are, why they're so uh, necessary. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they even mentioned the Butlerian Jihad or the Great Revolt, um, which I think would have been nice either in the conversation with Reverend Mother or even Tufer Howard himself could have explained it somewhere and give give him a little bit more time. Yeah. (laughs) Because that was another thing, too. Paul himself has had Mentat training. They don't mention that. At all. Yeah. The Mentats, for me, really were diminished. And I feel like it's such an important part of the universe itself. Right why they're this medieval futuristic society, why they feel this way towards technology. And it's it's like a foundational element of the universe. So I was very surprised, right. but even more surprised as far as Paul's Mentat training, because that is part of his becoming at the Kwisatz Haderach. And it's actually, it influences how he interprets his prescient visions. Right, yeah. Uh, so I think that's an important element that they... I don't, and I'm not sure why they chose to leave that out. I think they could have done it in a similar fashion to all the other exposition that, that they did, just fit it within conversations here and there. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wanted more of Piter. I wanted more of his uh, twisted nature. And we really don't see a big difference between the two. So I was really surprised at that. Yeah, Piter really, you know, we did an episode recently dedicated to Piter because he's such an interesting character. And as always, the Dune Encyclopedia has a bunch of like background on him and his like childhood and stuff. But he is such a fun, insane character in the book who you can tell is just always inches from going off the rails and just killing everyone <laughs> and having a blast and just having the most fun doing it. And he's like pouty and kind of a drug addict. And like there's all these things about him and none of that's in the movie. And I think that's a... You're right. Like, that's definitely something that I was a little bit hoping for. Yeah. I think David Dusmaltzian, is that how you say his name? Mm-hmm. I think he's a great actor, and I think he could have really brought that sort of energy if they gave him the opportunity, but there just isn't screen time for him, you know? I know. He, he was perfect to portray that, and I feel like they kind of wasted his abilities a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, So, like, in the very beginning, I feel like we could have extended that scene a little bit with where we first see the Baron in the steam room and Raban is coming in and telling him 
that they lost Arrakis. Right. I feel like they could have extended that a little bit and maybe instead of the scene with the Reverend Mother later to kind of combine those two scenes. Because I wasn't sure if the Reverend Mother's presence there was really necessary. The Baron could have just relayed what his plans were with the Emperor to Raban and Piter. So they could have given more lines to Piter in this regard and to talk about the traitor. Right, right. <laughs> the traitor in their midst, which I thought was a wasted opportunity for, because I think general audiences would have loved that. Yeah. To have that mystery of who is the traitor among House Atreides. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Although I will say if we cut that scene with the Reverend Mother, we wouldn't have gotten the weird spider thing. <laughs> uh, that's a head scratcher for me. I don't think I like it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. What's your theory? Elaine, what do you think that is? What do you think it is? <laughs> so I've heard some theories that it's maybe Awana was experimented with or turned apart already. Oh my God. Well, but that wouldn't have gone. That wasn't really consistent with the fact that the Baron said that UA would join her in death, but unless they just experimented with body parts, because it looks like it was a spider with human hands. It was very odd. (laughs) And it really, I thought, cut against the lore, because I don't think that's allowed. And honestly, genetic experimentation like that to where the Reverend Mother would have seen it. I mean, if they were going to do that, you think they would have hid that from her who works for the emperor right so i just couldn't get like the the reason for it and as well as the why the baron would even want it around because his his tastes are more like he doesn't have anything that's not of use to him yeah so this was another thing that kind (laughs) of bugged me too i wish they would have conveyed the wealth that the harkonnens have they really just had bare bones sets for them I really wanted to see the the Arrakis globe that was bejeweled and so expensive looking. Mm. So I kind of wanted to see him like... The table made of drugs. Yeah, I wanted to see him like a spice, you know, just out. And because, you know, that's exp- like, or just expensive tapestries or something that would have conveyed how much that they got from their corrupt dealings yeah. uh, with spice hoarding. And so... I'm not sure what his motivation was for for having that. And I can't think of a reason as far as his character, why he would even want to, because he doesn't do anything unless it's there's a use for it. Yeah, it's true. Like Piter, just he, he, he would have gotten rid of him once there was no use for him. So he doesn't really use use things just, I don't know, flippantly. Right. I thought, at least that's just my opinion yeah. <laughs> of, of, of the character. <laughs> I mean... I could think of some depraved things a eight-handed thing could do, but but they don't really lean into the <laughs> Baron's sort of sexual eccentricities. It's so odd. It's very strange. It's such an odd thing to put in there. I don't know what to think of it. It just scratched my head, though, and I will applaud them for that because that was a very odd thing to see. Yeah. And But it didn't break my immersion. I right. was still, like, fully right. into it. And it probably was the presence of the Reverend Mother because... Every time she was on scene, it was just palpable, and I was just captivated. Uh, yeah. Even in the presence of the Baron, she I was more scared of the Reverend Mother, to be honest. Oh, totally. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They did such a good job at, like, the costume, and her presence as an actress, just with the veil on her face, was so amazing that she could convey that much malevolence. Yeah, very impressed. Very impressed. And while I would have reworked some things, you know, it's... It is what it is. It's the best representation, probably, of these 
characters. Getty Prime itself, you know, was cool from the outside of the planet looking yeah. in. But yeah, just I just thought there would be more touches to convey their wealth, which they did mention. And that's that's one of my favorite scenes, though, from the book was the Baron's entrance and how he's looking so greedily at Arrakis, the, the expensive globe and jewels right. of it, just coveting it, coveting the planet. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's interesting thinking about what you're saying, looking at part two and like part two is going to have to include probably I can't imagine them cutting it. Fade Routha's birthday. Right. The Coliseum fight. Yeah. The Coliseum fight. And one of the things about that is Hasmir, Fenring and Margot walking around, seeing Harco City, right? Seeing what you're describing, this opulent wealth. Mm -hmm. But they also notice that just off the beaten path, there's like trash and it's dirty (laughs) and it's like not taken care of because House Harkonnen is now broke because they spent all their money on this fucking thing on this plot. Yeah. And also, can you imagine, like, a big festive Coliseum day with this Baron? Well, he definitely spends money on things that benefit him. So, or the appearance, his appearance, basically. Not on, I'm, he let the Arrakis fall into disrepair. He did not invest money to keep the equipment maintained. He just basically just wanted enough to keep the spice going and he didn't care about safety obviously so right that is why they have this extensive hoard but that makes sense as well for his planet that it's really just a superficial <laughs> expenditure of wealth that he doesn't really care about maintaining the bare the basic things right right but and, and maybe that does give a reason for the weird pet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I just don't know what to think of it. I that. will never get over it. I will never get over it. It's very Benny Tlaylax <laughs> to me, yeah. and I don't know why. Yeah, exactly. What that's doing here, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe when he ordered Piter from the Benny Tlaylax, it was like one of those complimentary gifts in the box. <laughs> oh, my god! Where they're like, for your purchase of this twisted mentat, we hereby <laughs> yeah. present you a weird spider gross thing. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he did get it from that. Actually, that would make more sense to me. I like that. I love that theory. That's my headcanon. Because he did get Piter from them. Yeah. So. He's dealt with them in the past. Yeah. They are responsible yeah. for all the gross shit in the universe. So, like, <laughs> probably them. I don't know. And it's so on brand. Those free gifts that companies give you are always such bullshit. <laughs> like, stuff you don't want, you know, that you get stuck Stop with. Stop <laughs> giving me spider humans. God. <laughs> I have three already. (laughs) Just stand around (laughs) high-fiving each other. It's gross. Ew. (laughs) All of their hands. All of their weird little people hands. I'm sure there are people who love that thing, so it could be just me. It actually felt very lynchy in a lot of those touches. Oh, yeah. Little things like that felt um, like it was an homage to Lynch's version. Maybe that was just for Jodo, you know? <laughs> yeah. That was Denny being like, hey, Jodorowsky, <laughs> this one's for you, buddy. We even saw the hazmat suits <laughs> yeah. later. You yeah. found suit. a way to put them in there. <laughs> the Among Us crossover. Yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So are we going to get like a Beanie Baby spider human proxy? <laughs> Yo, give me that merch. Spider spider oh, human merch. No. Oh, no. Hands. <laughs> the stuff of nightmares. <laughs> I wanted to really quickly, going back to Mentats. Now, without saying too much, because uh, we're not talking too much about like Messiah and like Messiah plot, you're right that like a big part of Paul in Dune, but also in Messiah, Paul's abilities are that he was trained as a Mentat and that he can perform computations, right? 
Do you think they will, in the second part of this movie, touch on that at all? Or do you think they're just going to fully cut that from his character and kind of focus on maybe the prescience as more of a powerful thing? You know, it's really hard to say because I've been surprised already at how little that they wanted to touch on this. Um, Maybe they won't. Maybe they won't go too deep into it. Mm. Because I feel like it would be a lot to fit into the sequel now. Right. And actually, we're, we're going to have like two more antagonists to the mix here. And I, I kind of feel like we have, well, you didn't really develop your antagonist that you had in this film. <laughs> so I feel like they kind of have to make up a little bit in developing the Baron and, and the Beast. Yeah. While introducing Fade and the Emperor to the mix, too. So I'm, I feel like it might be a lot for the sequel. And maybe yeah, since it hasn't been talked about already, I, I don't know if it will make it. But maybe further down the line, and if they do Dune Messiah, then yeah. like, uh, I do feel like I get the impression at times that maybe Denis was just too scared to push the uh, feature length of it, to, to push the three-hour film, or to have extensive exposition, or to make it feel like too many things were being explained. Yeah. And I feel like maybe the, the weight of Blade Runner was kind of weighing heavy on his heart in this and not having the guarantee of a sequel. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Maybe he wanted to be very, to tread lightly in that regard when it came to exposition because many feel that the David Lynch version, was, there was way too much exposition right. uh, in the beginning. Oh, is that the problem people have with the David Lynch movie? <laughs> the only problem I have with that. The exposition wasn't even correct when it came to the lore, but, you know, that's another thing. <laughs> But I know that it was a problem for some people, but that can be well done also because Fellowship of the Ring, I think, is the greatest example of establishing the core elements of the universe that this particular uh, world is founded on while not seeming, you know, to be like an exposition dump, to not seem to not get bored with it. But I think he really was affected by that. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up. I think... Blade Runner and Blade Runner's reception and like sort of middling box office had a lot to do with why we got this cut of Dune that we did Hmm. and why we're now seeing so many of these leaked photos of like cut scenes and scenes that were in the trailer that didn't even make it in the final cut. I think you're right. And it's a tough balancing act. Like you can't blame him. There's this business side of the movies where it's got to do well or else he doesn't get part two. Right. It's got to do well critically. The reception's got, you know, there's a lot of balls to juggle, and I'm sure he did the best he could. Right. But I agree that all throughout the movie, I get the sense that a lot of scenes were shorter than they originally were either shot or were in an earlier cut. Mm. Sure. And that there was a lot left on the cutting room floor. I don't know if you guys remember last year around when the movie was originally supposed to come out, there was a leak that said the runtime of the movie was three hours and five minutes or something like that, mm. like just over three hours. And so I was actually surprised to see that the final cut we got is a tight two and a half, you know? Right. So at some point a year ago, there was a Dune movie floating around that had 30 more minutes of stuff in it. Right. And now I yeah. really want to see all 30 <laughs> minutes of that. But... But having said that, and actually it makes me go back to your earlier question, Leo, that maybe maybe he will feel free or more free in the sequel to explain some more things. So maybe I was wrong and maybe he will have some more things about Mentats and um, in particular if Thufur is featured more, right. which I don't know at this point, no one knows what happened to him. Right. 
there's so much that the audience, you know, uh, didn't know as, as far as the other things that in the book that did reveal where Thufir is. So maybe he'll, with the guarantee of a sequel, he will feel free to just go all out and just have the creative freedom to finish his vision and finish, maybe flesh out some more of the elements that weren't in the, in this film. So hopefully yeah. that will happen soon. Yeah. Give us Denny unleashed. They're so coy about it too. It's really frustrating. Yeah. Like, did you see how it ends? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think you know <laughs> when, right. if there'll be a sequel. Well, I won't right. know until you tell me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just green light it and that'll be the end of it? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Right. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's wrap up this discussion. You have one more thing. Speaking of endings, actually, there's one more thing you wanted to talk about that you thought fell short in the movie. Oh yes, um, <laughs> sorry. Well, I have heard some mixed reviews about the ending, mm. and while I wouldn't say that it was like a cliffhanger at all, it did feel rushed, mm. and I feel like it's the climax of the film, and I f- feel like it was pretty short. Yeah. <laughs> For such a momentous moment and all the stuff that happened. And I feel like it was the perfect time for Paul to... We kind of got the feeling. We knew something has happened to the character of Paul. We, mm-hmm. they, they even teased it several times of the of the mouse, the desert mouse. Right. And I thought for sure he was going to choose his name. And that would have been such a way to cap that off. Because after the fight with Jameis... I was thinking the whole time, like, this is more deep, right, but I was right. waiting for the moment for him, for them to say it, for them to chant more deep a little bit, uh, or to have the voice that we got in the vision, the prescient visions, that weird kind of voice to to say that. Yeah. I think she did say something like that, to say it's time for the Kwisatz Haderach to rise, but I was hoping maybe somewhere in, in there, right. we could hear at least a <laughs> tease of his name, more deep, or... He did choose it immediately afterward, but after the fight, they were already on their way. Right. <laughs> and and the challenge to begin with felt rushed. Yeah. I wanted Jessica to kind of step up and try to ch- take the challenge away from Paul. Yeah. Because I think that's such an awesome moment for her character. Yeah. And she does in the books. Yeah. I want her to say, I'm always my own champion. Yeah. And yeah, she didn't get to say that line. It's true. <laughs> and I thought it would have been so cool for her to say. Right. Yeah. Right. We we did hear the word Amtel, though. Yeah. <laughs> if you guys recall, back in our episode, yeah. we discussed whether or not they would actually say the word Amtel in the movie. And they did. <laughs> they did. They did. In the movie. I, scre- I screamed. <laughs> Elaine! Yeah. They said the it movie. It was a problem. They said Lisan Al Gabe a lot, too. I was very surprised how often they said that. Yeah. And I think they said Mahdi yeah. uh, at least once. They said the Chakopsa language. Yeah. Chakopsa. The Mala pistol. I was glad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of terms. Yeah. A lot of terms. Yeah. So to your point, Elaine, about the climax being a little anticlimactic, do you think this was the right spot to end the movie? Or would there have been a more appropriate sort of quote unquote halfway point to end part one? Well, um, it's an interesting point because I assumed from what they, um, from other comments, and I think Greg Frazier himself said this was really a, a standalone film in itself. I think he described it as a standalone film with places to go. Hmm. And I don't really feel like it was really standalone in itself. Uh, yeah, I maybe disagree with that. <laughs> well, at least for other people. Yeah. He also famously only watches the first half of movies. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if general audiences would have gotten that. Yeah. 
I was struggling to to find that myself. And then I kind of had to come after thinking about it. Yeah, I think it was okay where they left it. Mm -hmm. I was a little surprised it didn't didn't come like once they got to Siege to Burn. This movie just would have been really long, I guess, if they'd included the Water of Life and, well, the funeral ceremony and then Paul choosing his name and then the Water of Life ceremony. So there was definitely a lot that they had to... And I can see why it was trimmed, but I think it would have been just a really cool thing. And I think it would have been felt more standalone to me if he'd have picked the name Deep because I felt like it was so perfect. They were teasing it right. several times. And the Desert Mouse is so cute. I really love that part. So cute. It's so cute. <laughs> Give us that merch also. Yeah. yeah. I'll buy the spider. I'll buy the mouse. <laughs> yeah. They actually showed the mouse like make its own water. That was such an yeah. amazing detail. that I can't believe they, they put that in yeah. there. And... But that's something that Stilgar notes. He's like, that's a good ch- choice for a name. This is, yeah. you know, it's a survivor, makes its own water. It was such a really cool moment. And I thought that maybe a couple more lines from Stilgar saying, you're one of us now. Yeah. Mm, yeah. God. Now it's time for you to choose your friend a name or something. Just just a little bit more time there, I think. So where it didn't feel so rushed. And Javier would deliver whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> just like the, you should have a name. Yeah. Uh I loved every scene he was in. Oh, he was his presence was great. I loved how he stormed into the council. Um, <laughs> yes, so perfect. The spitting. So oh, funny. that was so perfect how he did that. <laughs> it was so great. <laughs> and Jason Momoa again just was amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that entire spitting scene was so good. And I was yeah. telling Leo earlier during our recording, I'm very excited for part two now. Right. Well, I guess I, I always have been, but. In particular, after seeing Javier Bardem as Stilgar and knowing the bigger role that Stilgar plays in the second half of the book, yeah, I cannot wait to see more Stilgar. Yeah. More Stilgar, more Shani, right? Oh, yeah, I'm just so excited. Right. So yeah, so I feel like my biggest critique comes from just wanting it a little bit more from the Harkonnens. Yeah. And I guess that would be in connection with the traitor subplot as well. Just they're discussing their plans, where we could have maybe fleshed out the Mentats a little bit as well in that regard. Yeah. So just a little bit more from them, the uh, Harkonnens and Pyder, and a little bit more from Jessica Cheney and Stilgar at the end, very end. Right. I feel like just a couple lines, like Jessica trying to take the challenge away from Paul and Cheney maybe with a couple more lines of dialogue, noting that Jameis switches his hands when he, or he's proficient in both. Right. Right. And just give her a little bit another line. <laughs> and then and then Maudip. And I think that would have been perfect. Yeah. Is that asking too much? Probably. I don't know. <laughs> nope. No, no, no. No, 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 I, I agree yeah. on all those points. And in fact, hashtag release the Elaine cut is all I have to say about that. <laughs> the nerd cookie cut. The nerd cookie cut. Oh my god. I know. But but at the end of the day, you know, this really captured the spirit of Frank Herbert's right. novel. And that's all yeah. I could really reasonably ask for. That was the biggest hurdle. And they, you know, Denis killed it in that regard. Because uh, I really felt the themes were driven home. And the most important characters, I guess, were really fleshed out. And those relationships were really strong. Yeah, no kidding. So I was really emotionally invested. And I can't wait for that to carry over for the other characters in the sequel. Yeah. Can't wait. Totally. <laughs> Hopefully that will happen. Right. <laughs> there there's one thing are we over? Is it I'm sorry, is it Well, whatever. <laughs> We're never over, Elaine. We're never this, this is gonna be another four hours. 
Another thing just popped into my head, and I, I want to get y'all's thoughts, was that one of the pressing of visions was Jameis, and I was so surprised how he, how they used that, yeah. like a possible future. Yeah. But he mixes a Benny Gesserit saying with a Mentat saying, and I was like, what is going on here? Yeah. And now that I think about it more, I was like, I wonder if that's Paul's training coming through in this vision, and that's like the only Mentat thing that we really got. <laughs> from him as far as having that training. Wow, yeah. I know. But they also didn't tie that to mentatisms. No. It's an Easter egg. <laughs> the Easter egg, right? Just for the three of us. Yeah. <laughs> Just for us. The uh the first part, right, that the mystery of life isn't a problem to solve but a, an experience to live or something. Yeah. To experience. To experience. Wow, someone's not a Benny Gesserit. Fuck that up, Leo. <laughs> I'm a fake fan. I was just saying. <laughs> it's the only reason I know. I've yeah. <laughs> but there is this like, you know, the Fremen have the Missionaria Protectiva. Like they've got some implanted Benny Gesserit teachings, you know, axioms, beliefs, you know, structures, the Sayadina. Surprised that Sayadina oh, yeah, was Sayadina. brought up in the uh, in the movie. Mm-hmm. That was good. But uh so that kind of makes sense coming from Jameis. But him mentioning the Mentat law, I was like, okay, it would be weird for them to now make that a Mentat law in the like cinematic version of this movie. So yeah, I just kind of saw that as it's a good quote. We got to get it in there. Yeah. And it's cool that Paul is taking lessons from a future that doesn't happen. Yeah. It does work for that. Yeah. Is pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was a really shocking way to show how prescience isn't absolute. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. It shows many possible futures, and it, there's no guarantee that only one of them is the true one. These are all possibilities, and it really is up to Paul's choices and the decisions he makes and what paths he follows that results in one of those futures. Yeah. And there's a world out there in which Jameis lived and was actually Paul's mentor. Yeah. That's wild. Right. I mean, that's amazing a feat to accomplish. Like Just like the books, there's always something you're going to catch on your next viewing right. of this film. So that's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> so every time I've watched it, rewatched it recently, there's like, oh, I wonder if this is foreshadowing this. Right. Oh, I didn't <laughs> notice that before. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there was an interview recently with, with Villeneuve talking about the Gamjabar scene, and he talked about how the reason it's in a library, like the whole back wall is covered in books. He's showing in a lot of scenes that this is a world without computers and without artificial intelligence. So... I do think that there are elements of the plot that we're not going to get an exposition because they're in the backdrop. Yeah. And they're part of the tapestry that he's showing us at all the time, which could be satisfying, could also be dissatisfying. Right. Dissatisfying. Dissatisfying. <laughs> you were satisfied and now you're not. <laughs> uh, dissatisfying. <laughs> I also like the shift of Jameis to friend in all the pressing visions and Chani as a killer. Yeah. The idea of Chani stabbing the shit out of Paul Ooh, yeah. was such a fun shift from the book yeah that was really cool very well done how they did that i just uh i hope that general audiences will continue to like think about it because there's so many things and if you're not familiar and hopefully it will inspire those that aren't familiar to read the book because it really if you like this film yeah read the book because there's so much more that is added and as is the case with any adaptation you know (laughs) they this is a different medium of storytelling but the book will just really enrich the lore and will definitely answer some questions, which I'm sure a lot of people have. Right. Okay, to wrap up, Elaine, I have a very simple question for you. <laughs> if you had 
a spider with hands as a pet. Oh my! <laughs> what would you oh. name it? <laughs> Man, that's a toughie. I'm sorry. To, <laughs> I'm sorry to hit you with that without prep. A spider with it. But just... I've been sitting here trying to brainstorm ideas for my mm-hmm. spider pet, and I. I don't know. <laughs> need help? You need inspiration. <laughs> I need inspiration. <laughs> I've got three of these. Haven't named a single one of them. Um, sting. I don't know sting. something that. <laughs> sting. <laughs> oh my god, that's actually so good. <laughs> little little callback. Right. It works on so many levels. That works for a spider. Oh wow, that's brilliant. <laughs> there you have it, folks. Name your spider Sting. That's yeah. amazing. Okay, before we say goodbye, Elaine. I want to give you the opportunity. The floor is yours. Tell the folks at home about your incredible doing videos, your YouTube channel, all the other geeky sci-fi stuff that you're up to on the internet and where they can watch your stuff and find you online. Uh, Well, thank you. And as always, it was such a pleasure to chat with you guys and geek out about Dune. And yeah, you can find more Dune stuff on on my YouTube channel, Nerd Cookies. Built up quite a large playlist right right now so there's tons of lore videos if you want to dive back in and get familiar with some of the topics like mentats if you want to get that or <laughs> butlerian jihad those elements that <laughs> need a refresher on as well as some more spoilery stuff for what happens later so hopefully there's something for everybody but i also cover other sci-fi and fantasy topics uh battlestar galactica hmm. i'm probably going to start getting into babylon 5 lore as well cool. if you're into that uh come check it out and you can follow me at Twitter on your cookies as well. And that's it. <laughs> Amazing. We'll put all of those links in the show notes so that yeah. folks can find them. Thank you. <laughs> so, Elaine, what I hear you saying is that people should watch the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and then go to youtube.com slash nerd cookies. Get all their questions answered, read the book, and then find Gam Jabbar on their favorite podcast app and listen. Oh, totally. Yeah, that's perfect. The perfect <laughs> dude journey. <laughs> All right, Elaine, thank you so much for joining us again. It was an absolute treat. Indeed. Thank you. And uh, (laughs) we can't wait to have you back sometime again in the future. Yeah, anytime. I saw it in a prescient vision, so it's got to (laughs) come true. It's got to come true. (laughs) Yeah, just don't stab Abu, okay? We're just trying to avoid that prescient vision. Yeah, I saw that in a vision, too. I'm hoping that one (laughs) could go either way. Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Mwadib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lord Party Podcast Network on lordparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Path. God. Well, now I got to go feed my spider hand thing. (laughs) (laughs) It eats so much. It has hands, right? So you could give it silverware, right? Opposable thumbs? It just refuses to use it because it's also rude, which is also why I think it's (laughs) Tylaxu.